Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Have you ever read the newspaper, The Onion? I remember I was so impressed because I was introduced to it. I started reading it online, like in the 90s. And then I saw that they were an actual paper. I thought, oh, that's a pretty cool idea that a website became a newspaper. I didn't know they were a newspaper before that. So talk to the founder or a co-founder or co-founding editor, Scott Dickers, all about humor, comedy, writing comedy, Building up the onion. How did the onion succeed? It's an incredible story. Here it is. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Scott, how would you take something as boring as microphones and make it an onion headline? Well, that's the beauty of the onion and the onion headline is that you can make it about anything. Yeah. And it's, you know, people always think that a restrictive format, like a news parody format is going to be, uh, it's going to restrict your creativity. It actually expands it greatly because it allows a channel for it to go. A creative person can just get unmoored if there's no kind of structure for the joke. So you know, if I had to like brainstorm 10 onion headlines about microphones, I could do it if you gave me a few minutes, but I'm probably not going to be able to do it off the top of my head. I keep thinking of your recent headline, police chief yells at Herschel Walker for blowing cover in undercover Senate run operation. That's great. So maybe like Herschel Walker uh, thought microphone was, you know, secret listening device for the, I, I don't know. Now I'm now I'm not now I'm not coming up with any ideas, but well, you see how difficult it is. If everybody could do it, it everybody would own the onion. And it yeah. <laughs> so you've been doing this for like what is it now? Uh, I mean, the onion started around 1988, and you were the, the co-founding editor. Yeah, uh, and I was editor in chief on and off for many years. I have finally left for the final time. I come and go, um, but I, I have left for the final time now. Why is, it, why is that? Why did you leave for the final time? I mean, it's a long time to do something, so I respect it that. Is. But Yeah, you know, I, every time I've left, it was because I felt like, okay, I've done what I can do here, and I want to do other things. And then for whatever reason, they would ask me back, or they would get into new things that would, you know, excite me because they were challenging. And so I would come back. But now I feel like ownership has changed so many times, and the people who are running it 
really want their turn, you know, so I don't see them ever asking me back. Um, but if they did, like, it's my baby, so I would totally uh, help. But was it a was it ever like a big business? Yeah, it's it keeps getting bigger, you know. Um, it's a lot of employees. There's like a board. I remember one time, I was uh, I was the editor. I was in, I was in charge of all the creative and kind of focused on that. And I saw a bunch of these guys in tucked in polo shirts and blazers come into the office. And I asked our financial guy, like the CFO, I was like, who, who are these guys? And he said, oh, those are, that's our board of directors. And I said, we, what? We have a board of directors? There's no creative person on the board of directors. It's all these suits, like who knows where they came from. Uh, they're advising the Onions leadership team about what to do. And the writers and the editors are just siloed into this other office where we're just coming up with jokes. Not how it always used to be, but that gives you some idea. It's it's turned into like a big company. And and by big company, like like are you talking a hundred million in revenues or you know, like how big yeah, is as far it? as revenues, I'm sure it's in the tens of millions mm-hmm. um, per year in revenue. And every time it sold, sells, you know, it sells for tens of millions. But you know, the value of a of a publication is in the goodwill and the name. So you know, it's it's almost hard to quantify that. And and the Onion has withstood the test of time. I mean, I first saw the Onion, I guess, back in the late '90s on the web. But then I was so surprised to see also there were print versions, you know, in every grocery store or or pharmacy or whatever. And I'm like, oh, there are a print version too. But you started out as a print version in the '80s. Yeah, a lot of people don't even realize that that it started in print and was in print for like seven years before we went online and kind of the whole history of the onion, like behind the curtain that people don't see, like the business side of it was really, you know, lucky because there were so many times when the onion could have taken a a deadly hit and it survived. And one of the first times was when the internet market crashed in 2000, 2001. It was like early 2001. And so many other websites and the onion was among them, like these big websites that everybody knew. And some of them had millions of dollars of investment, celebrity endorsements. And I went out to some of these places before the crash and there were airport hangar sized offices with people in cubicles doing stuff. And after the crash, those things were gone. They just vanished yeah. in a heartbeat. But the onion was primarily making its money from the print publications. It was like maybe 80% still making money from print advertising. So when that all folded, the onion survived just fine. And then when the market crashed again in 2008, when the print market crashed, by then the onion was like 80% digital, 20% print. But you know we always diversified and it wasn't any kind of smart business strategy that had us diversifying. All it was was my total obsession and ambition to get the onion anywhere and everywhere we could get it. So as soon as the internet became a thing, we were like, get it online. As soon as podcasting became a thing, get it on a podcast. You know, we were on the radio, I think in year two, we did a little radio show. So we had all this diversification. We had all these little revenue streams so we could take a hit in one or the other and survive. And I actually learned a lot from 
other humor publications that came before The Onion about what not to do because humor publications in America don't survive very long. They're, the Onion is the longest surviving one by far. What about, I mean, I don't even know. Is, is I mean, all through my childhood, I read Mad Magazine, but I yeah, actually so have no I. idea if, if it's still around. Well, they went out of business recently. <laughs> they, uh, I think, you know, the name still survives and I don't know what's happening with it, but they stopped publishing. You know, they went, they went down to, um, I, I remember if it was bi-monthly or something like that. Um, and they were purchased by some big company, uh, some comic book company. But yeah, so I think technically, if you consider Mad Magazine still alive, and you know, the National Lampoon um, name is still alive too, and people are always trying to resuscitate that. But when I say longest surviving, I mean longest surviving and thriving, like still yeah. relevant. Well, I would say, I would say Cracked is doing great. Yeah, Cracked, Crack.com is great. I've actually written for Cracked.com, and oh, good I, for I you. think that's yeah. great. Yeah. And, yeah. and they have a very specific formula, and I'm going to ask you about that as well. Like they, their whole thing is the article has to be true, but ridiculous. <laughs> so you have to kind of find really true facts but to basically underline the ridiculousness of some aspect of life. Like yeah, you, can't you, know, make, you can't make up stuff and it's still, it has to be funny right. though. Yeah, when I was a kid, MAD was the undisputed leader in the MAD cracked war. Yeah. But once the internet came, cracked really uh, laid waste to MAD magazine. Cracked was really killing it. And you couldn't even find mad.com if you googled mad.com it was just like it disappeared and yeah they really embraced that news of the weird idea that the national lampoon got started totally different from what they used to do which was pretty much the same thing as mad magazine they would do parodies and you know comics and stuff like that so they've been smart you you made a really good point distinguishing the national lampoon and, and uh the onion in, in your book about the history of the onion where you said national lampoon kind of started to revolve around the names and personalities of the writers so when one writer left you would just sort of know and it would you know the quality would go just like with snl now if if an actor leaves a famous actor leaves people say oh it's no good since that's the so-and-so left and with the onion you deliberately kept names off the the bylines yeah, which was, uh, so it's something people always ask about, especially other comedy writers and people in the business. Like, how can you do that? How, how Don't writers want credit? And it's never been a problem. From day one, we knew that it was funnier if there were no names because then it seemed more like this, this instrument of truth handed down from on high that you just had to believe. And it felt more impenetrable without the names. And it, it was fun to have people guessing who's behind this. What, what is this? And we, you know, we had a staff box, I guess that's kind of a standard thing. A newspaper or a website has to have like a masthead, but we would shuffle the names around and change the titles. So nobody would really know who was what, and nobody ever complained. Nobody ever had a problem with that. It became a real integral part of the culture because everyone understood that we were building a brand that we wanted people to love. We weren't building personal careers or personalities that we wanted people to fall in love with because that can only end in disaster for a humor publication. Well, and I think became, I think the brand became so powerful that if, if you wrote for The Onion and later were able to say, hey, I wrote for The Onion, people don't know what articles you wrote. It's like you wrote everything. So your, your, your personal brand actually was elevated later if you, if you wrote for The Onion. 
Yeah. And I, I can't tell you how many like Hollywood agents I meet who tell me, oh yeah, I've got a client who used to work for The Onion. And I'm like, who? And they, they give me the name and I have no idea who it is because uh, they wrote one headline in 1996 or something. But, you know, it, it, it really has become a good calling card. There's so many people who have worked at The Onion and have been incredibly successful. Like one guy wasn't even part of the core group, but he did write headlines for us for a long time. He was a regular contributor, a guy by the name of Sam Means, who went on to be uh, an instrumental creative force uh, at The Office and at Parks and Rec. Mm. And, um, you know, there have been so many others, but uh, that's amazing because when we started, there was this thing called the Harvard Lampoon Mafia where people would go to the Harvard Lampoon and kind of get a direct channel to, I don't know, The Simpsons or any kind of sitcom they wanted to write on. And it seems like The Onion is that now. First off, I want to ask you about media in general. Like right now, and maybe people always say this about media, but right now it seems media is more ridiculous than ever. Like you almost read an article in any newspaper and you think, did I just read? It's almost a cliche to say, is this the onion or is this the New York times? Like, cause a lot of these headlines sound ridiculous. Like, do you find that the ridiculousness of traditional media now almost is a danger to the onion? A little bit. Yeah. Because, and I think they were influenced by the onion. I think they saw that in this period when print was dying, the onion was growing. And so they, they, I think, did some self-assessment and realized, oh, if we're a little more absurd, if we have a little more grabby headline, you know, because I, I know just from working at The Onion that watching the most emailed story or the, the most clicked on story, you're looking at the heat map analysis of the week. I know other newspapers were doing the same thing. So they know what works and what doesn't work. And some long, boring article about a really important voting rights bill in Congress. It's not going to get nearly as many hits as some news of the weird story, you know, about a, a 21-year-old hottie or, you know, sex scandal, you name it. So I, I do see that change. And obviously part of it is the repeal of the fairness doctrine and how you can integrate opinion with news now in a way that you really couldn't like before the 1980s. Oh, well, why and, is that? I, I don't know the fairness doctrine. Like what? I, I just thought this was a natural evolution. Yeah, it was an FCC rule that Reagan's um, FCC director decided we don't need anymore. And it basically meant that if you devoted time to a political opinion on the air, you had to devote equal time to the to an opposing opinion. Before that time, it was almost like a culture that existed within news where a lot of networks provided news as a public service to create an informed citizenry, all that is out the window now. So all the news networks are for-profit and they don't have to have balance. So that's what allowed for the rise of Fox News. And that's how you know big advertisers can basically own the narrative on all the news channels, regardless of which ones we're talking about. The big pharma companies, the big oil companies, they're the major advertisers on all these networks. So that's why we get fluff. You know, we don't get any real news about what's really happening um, because they're kind of untethered. The whole thing is just, 
it, it's unraveled to a point that I don't see it ever becoming raveled <laughs> again. Uh, it's it's sad and depressing, and I hope that it wasn't my fault. <laughs> well, I don't think it was your fault. Like you said, I think the profit motive is strong with totally. the media companies, and they legit. I mean, they're technically they're all out of business, right? So the New York Times was bought by I guess Carlos Slim, the richest guy in in Mexico, because they couldn't afford to live themselves. The Washington Post was bought by Jeff Bezos. You know, Wall Street Journal is just a toy for Rupert Murdoch. Like yeah. none of these news, none of the greatest newspapers in U.S. history could survive on their own now, other than the Onion. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and even the Onion was was bought, but I think it actually does, you know, make a profit. And it goes to show you, like, the value of the goodwill of those names. You know, the New York Times has a brand and a goodwill that is, it could survive decades of ownership by the most unscrupulous people imaginable and people would still read it and believe it. And the Washington Post, you know, is it's happening now, you know, who, who would believe the Jeff Bezos newsletter? Like who would buy that and believe it? But that's what the, that's what the Washington Post is. And people get so tied up in the power of the brand. You know, we're just, we're lemmings. We, we just follow the, the brand. We follow the logo. And we don't really think beyond that. We all have busy lives. We have families, you know, we don't have time to like dig deeper and, and do research. So if we see the Washington Post, we see a story, we just automatically trust it. And that's super frightening. And I, I don't see, I don't see how or where it ends. I'm, I have a lot of faith in the internet. I have a lot of faith in alternative news sure. sources, but my God, that's just as much of a mess because everybody's in their own silo of truth. And now we have like competing facts. This is terrifying. <laughs> well, it's really true. Like, have you ever had an article written in one of these major publications about you or The Onion? I'm sure there's been many. Oh yeah, all the time. And, and let me ask you a question. In each one of those articles, would you say they were 100% true or... No, Would never. You, like you, never. you sometimes one, I'm sure you've had the same experience. You, you read these articles and you're like, where did they get that? You right. Know, and they so have the, a narrative. And, and that's where you see the article and you know what's true. So <laughs> exactly. imagine all the articles you don't know, you yeah. have to assume they're not true either. It's happening in every single article. So a lot of people think that, oh, that couldn't be true. That couldn't be happening. It's how could anyone be that devious? But it's not devious at all. It's just a it's just a matter of the culture. Like what news anchor, what news reporter is going to get hired in an organization that Jeff Bezos owns who is going to speak ill of Jeff, Be Jeff Bezos? It's not going to happen. So you're right. just automatically you're building kind of um bribery and coercion into the system so it doesn't feel like it. It just feels like people are doing their jobs. And everyone has this establishment bias or this bias toward uh, the rich, richest 1% in America. And they think it's normal. And everybody who reads it just thinks that's normal. And we're really hoodwinked by it. Like uh, the vast majority of the American public are totally in the pocket. Propaganda works. You know, it, it really is powerful. Yeah. And, and you figure it's not just the owners of it's not just Jeff Bezos, but it's also all the advertisers of the Washington Post. Of like, of course, if yeah. if if like uh, you know Chase Bank 
is the big advertiser or, or if like Exxon is the biggest advertiser in the Washington Post, there's probably not going to be too many bad articles about, you know, polluting in the ocean or whatever it is. Nope. Acidification, so, acidification of the oceans, climate change, that's all, kind of off limits. Or, yeah. or you, can, you can do some article about it to make it look like you care by saying, well, by 2100, scientists think the ocean level, <laughs> sea level might rise by one inch, you know, or something like that. But I yeah. remember when the onion started, we had a deal and this, this deal is gone now. But so I had a business partner who handled all the business and I handled all the editorial. And our deal was he couldn't tell me what to print and I couldn't tell him how to spend the money. So we would sometimes do an article that would just tear apart one of our major advertisers. Um, <laughs> like we, we were struggling for so many years in the beginning to get good advertisers, to get national advertisers. We finally got one. We got like a major cigarette advertiser, I believe, to do a color ad on the back page. Big deal for us. And we did a big front page story about uh, how uh, the dangers of secondhand smoke. Like, I think um, the headline was secondhand smoke causes secondhand coolness. <laughs> and so, you know, we're just, we're just tearing apart all their... Um, PR that they're trying to put out there about how cigarettes are cool and smoking is cool and don't worry about secondhand smoke and all that stuff. And we lost advertisers because of that. And it, it, that could never, that could never fly in any other media organization. And it actually worked at the onion. Like we, yes, we lost advertisers, but we gained an audience because the audience saw that we were fearless. And we also gained new advertisers who knew that they would be made fun of, but wanted to be a part of that because they knew they were getting the eyeballs, you know? And so it's a, it's a system that can work, but I don't see the major media ever adopting anything like that. I, yeah. I, I see how it could work because let's just take the case of the cigarette companies. They could lean into this totally. in, in, in a way like, and say, Hey, People are going to smoke anyway. <laughs> we all, they all, everybody in the country already knows cigarette smoking is bad for you. And yet tens of millions of people smoke. So yeah. it's not like your parody article is going to suddenly wake people up and say, you know, it really doesn't make me secondhand cool. This exactly. I'm going to stop smoking. So they could lean into it and just like enjoy the party. Like, yeah. you know, it is what it is. But, but, but I want to take apart that one headline because this gets into, into process where how do you what's the process for coming up with a headline like that is it is it kind of and i know you you're a big fan of quantity produces quality which which i think is a very important part of creativity is it just that you throw it out to you know tons of people and and to come up with as many ideas as possible and then you pick the best one or is there kind of a, a for a little bit of a formula of hey what can we say about this that hasn't been said before yeah, it's a little bit of both. So you always do the kind of open invitation to the writing staff, write whatever you want. And then we'll read through all those headlines and pick like 0.01% of them that are funny and we'll run those. And that's how you kind of tap into the zeitgeist and you come up with interesting ideas you might not have ever come up with because it's just, you're saying, hey, what's on your mind, you know? But then Occasionally, something big will happen in the news, or there's some issue that you feel like you want to cover, and then you tell people, "Hey, let's let's come up with a, a few headlines on this subject," you know. And then they, the process is the same. They come up with a ton. We read through them and try to find the best one. 
And I remember when we were doing our first original book, it was a, a look back at the history of the 20th century through fake front pages of The Onion. And we wanted to cover every major news event in the 20th century as if The Onion had been there to cover it. And we really wanted to like nail every single event with the best joke we could find. And that was really hard. I remember there were some that we went back and back and round after round to come up with a joke. And it was like, no, still, still don't have it. Still not there, you know? Uh, so it, it can be really hard. It can be really monotonous. Like the process is not fun or, or funny. There's, there's rarely any laughs. It's very intellectual. You know, it's a, it's a lot of like, you know, at the onion, we always hired like genius level people, like just super high IQ people. Like every single one of them was like, twice as smart as I was. And you sit in this room and you hear these people have these intellectual conversations about why this word was funnier than this word and why this particular structure of a joke is better than this particular structure. And nobody's like cracking up. It's not like a, a party. It's not like, you know, the, the Dick Van Dyke show or 30 Rock or something. It's, you know, it, it would, it would uh, be dispiriting for just about anybody who had any fantasy of what being in a writer's room <laughs> would be like. I'm just curious, like what were, do you remember any of the details of any of these arguments? Like what, what, what did someone say was a word that was funnier than another, or a structure that was funnier than another structure? Oh man, there's so, there's so many. Uh, we used to have a sign on the wall that was like, words you can't use anymore. And some of them were pretty funny, but like they'd been used once or twice too much, like in the culture. So they, they don't work anymore. You know, I, God help me, I'm not going to be able to think of any, <laughs> any examples off the top of my head. But as far as structure goes, it was always a matter of like shifting words around and trying to put the funny part last. Um, sometimes, you know, like, like that secondhand smoke doesn't lead to secondhand coolness. Like that's very interesting because there's so many medical studies on the effects of secondhand smoke, but right. you but you mix that with the concept that teenagers smoke because it looks cool or they think it looks right. cool. So combining those two concepts cr creates a really funny headline. And like you say, the, the joke comes last, like the word coolness is the last word. Yep. The you weird or unusual or funny word. And then you have that repetition, the yeah. uh, alliteration of, uh, with the re repetition of the word secondhand, which uh, is a bit of wordplay that always works. And also uh, secondhand coolness is not necessarily that's a phrase that's never used, but you know what it means. Like, exactly. you know, it's just, without it meaning anything, you, you sort of get a, have a sense <laughs> right. of what it means. So that, exactly. that use, that weird use of the phrase is, is funny. Yeah. So there's a lot of examples like that where, um, and also just cutting words. Like sometimes a headline comes in, it's pretty funny, but just has too many words, you know? So you could say secondhand smoke leads to secondhand coolness, but it's funnier as causes because it's one word <laughs> and instead of two, and it just makes the whole thing shorter and brevity is the soul of wit, you know? So a lot of times it's almost like a math puzzle, almost like, you know, these computer scientists sit in rooms to figure out how to cram more gigabytes into a smaller hard drive. And we get these, you know, increasing capacity and in hard drives 
that's how it often felt in the onion writer's room with each joke, like whittling it down to its bare essence. You know, and you cut one word and it's like, no, oh, now it's not funny anymore. So we've cut too much. We've gone too far. So we got to yeah. put that one back. And, and leads to, it's funny because, so I, I used to do stand-up comedy for many years and oh. I, I don't know if it's the same with the written word versus when you say words out loud, but like leads to in a very small way, it's not as funny as causes because the K sound is considered a funnier sound. There's that too. Yeah. So you always have to consider the sound of the words, the poetry of the the words. It is very similar in stand-up. You know, you want to be as concise as possible as well. You don't want to be up there blathering, uh, filling time. <laughs> so, and and you know, like you've mentioned in your your book about the history of the Onion, there's been nonstop competition since day one. And like now, I would say almost equivalent in humor to the onion is the Babylon B and they're, they're getting, they're building a, a, a strong band, very brand very quickly. They're doing great. Yeah. Yeah. Like, do you see them as obviously their competition, but do you see them as uh, uh, a threat or? No, I, I don't see any of it as a threat. I feel like comedy is not a zero sum game. I think there can be as much as you want. And as long as it's finding an audience, it's going to be fine. And if anything, I think it helps, you know, each thing helps the other, you know, the onion has obviously helped the Babylon B. Um, you know, yeah, I think they help us. So I would, it's I would say the Babylon B is almost like they've really taken the onion formula and I don't want to say copied it, but they're very similar in style, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, the onion has always tried to be an equal opportunity offender, always tried to be non-political, but Let's be honest, most comedy writers are progressives, and so you definitely have a progressive bent. But being progressive, in my opinion, is sort of like favoring the 99% over the 1%. So that's why most comedy is progressive, because it really targets the vast majority of the audience. However they just you know think of themselves politically, almost everybody agrees with progressive um, policies. You know, they're, they're pro-people, they're anti-pollution, um, you know, basic stuff like that. But when it comes down to semantics, and you know, some people consider themselves conservative, some people consider themselves liberal, that's where the Babylon Bee does well, because the conservative people think, well, there's no comedy for me. You know, all the comedy is liberal. Again, thinking of it in a very narrow way. And so they did a great job of carving out that niche so that conservative people can have an onion that they like, <laughs> you know? Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. 
and I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So let's say there was a news topic that's important, that's topical. It seems like your process was more, hey, let's hire the funniest people possible, tell them the topic, tell them to focus on quantity and, and you'll figure something out. Or was there a little bit of guidance and, hey, here's how you write an Onion article? Just like with with Cracked, it's very much, not. I don't want to say a formula, you still have to be funny, but it's a lot more of a, a formula-based. Yeah, there is a little bit more of a formula now at The Onion, and I've seen how they communicate with potential contributors. They have very strict structures and rules and I also see it in the articles and that kind of bothers me a little bit because I liked when it was more open. I liked when it was, you know, every, you couldn't really predict what would happen. You couldn't always predict like now in, in the news and brief stories, there's always a, an actuality in the second sentence. There's always a joke in the last sentence that starts at press time. 
And that starts to feel like a formula and a cliche and like a mold. And yeah, I, I, I certainly wouldn't be doing that. Um, so uh, yeah, I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> and I, when I was running the onion, yes, I would train people and I would always hire people who had no comedy experience. So they weren't hacks mm. and they had no comedy, you know, bad habits. And I would uh, basically- but you, you would hire some people though, from like the improv world. And, uh, uh, it, it seems like you did hire people some. who had some. Yeah. But no professional experience. Okay. Like always amateur comedy experience. And I would teach them the fundamentals of like, you know, joke concept structure and the 11 funny filters that I describe in my book, how to write funny. And I teach in my classes. And then from there, you funnel that into the news parody format and the world is your oyster. I would, I would never teach people or train people to do something in a mold, you know, that it always has to be like this and always has to be structured like this because that's not how the real news is. And if you're parodying the real news, you want to be a little more open about it and have these kind of basic ideas of, well, you want your nut graph at the top and you want to make sure you're not editorializing, you know, all these other AP style things. What that's was what a nut graph? Oh, that's the first paragraph in a news story that has the who, what, where, why. And so, okay. So uh, I'm sorry, I haven't read your um, how to write funny books, but I am going to buy them. I, they, they, they oh, look great. You. I was just looking at them. I have read your story about the history of the onion. So what, what are like some of the, you know, one or two of the 11 funny filters? Yeah. So these are tools that professional comedians use to make things funny. And we used to talk about these things in the onion meetings all the time. We kind of had a shorthand for them and other comedians talk about them as well. Uh, George Carlin uh, once said that he knows if a joke is going to work before he performs it on stage because it has all the elements. And another comedian he was talking to was like, oh, wh what are those elements? You know, and um, so there, there are 11 of them. And they, I call them the funny filters. And no one had ever really written them down or named them all. So I did it just in a, in a really uh, plain, matter-of-fact you know, nonfiction short handbook uh, so that people could pick it up, learn it and get a head start in their comedy. Because a lot of people in comedy don't want to tell you the secret. They want you to pay your dues and trial and error and all this other nonsense. I think comedy should be more like magic where you can buy magic trick books and they tell you exactly how to do it. So yeah, just to give you a couple of the 11, um, these are the 11 different ways that jokes can, can be funny. You take a concept, some idea or thought that you have, an observation about the world, and you turn it into something funny by filtering it through one of these 11 things. So uh, a few of them are irony. That is, you just say the opposite of what the, your opinion is. Uh, another one is misplaced focus, where you intentionally focus on the wrong thing to make the audience think of the thing that you're trying to say. And well, what's another, an example of that? Is that what was an example of that? Well, a great a great example of that would be uh, Anthony Jeselnik's stand-up comedy. If you know him, yeah, uh, yeah. Almost, almost every one of his jokes is a misdirection. So he gets you focusing on one thing, and then he reveals at the end that you were focusing on the wrong thing. I'll give you an example from The Onion. So um, we did a headline uh, about the band U2, and it was um, "Rest of U2 Totally Fine with Africans Starving." <laughs> so 
it was a joke about how Bono is always trying to raise money for starving Africans, but instead it focused on the other band members. Like, what are they doing? You know? Right. And it interviewed them and they were like, oh no, I'm mostly concerned with, you know, coming up with cool guitar riffs, you know, you know, starving kids is, is not my thing or not. That's Bono's thing. And we never mentioned Bono. We never mentioned what he does. You just focus on the other thing. And it's funny to focus on the smaller thing that doesn't often get focus. Uh, it makes people realize what you're saying, which is in that article, I think the subtext is really interesting because it's saying Bono cares about starving Africans and no one else does. You, the reader, don't care <laughs> because you're just like these guys. What are you doing for starving Africans? And it's always interesting satire when you can indict the reader in some way, make them laugh at their own failings. You know? And so wait, which funny filter was that? That's misplaced focus. Because, okay, so can I tell you an Anthony Jeselnik joke that that reminds Please. me of? Okay, and yeah. I'll just, he has a particular style of telling a joke, so I won't emulate that style. But he basically says, you know, I pay 75 cents a day to feed a kid in Africa. At 75 cents a day, I pay for his food. I pay for his shelter. I pay for his education. And that 75 cents is nothing compared to the cost of sending him to Africa. Yeah. Uh, so by the, and by the way, I messed it up because he concluded, of course, with the funniest thing at the end. He doesn't say to Africa, just he says to there or whatever. Um, yeah, of shipping him to there yeah. or something. Shipping yeah. him there. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, that's what he does. So, and you know, it's, it's like a magic trick with him. You're always trying to figure oh. out halfway through what. How's he going to twist this to be dark yeah. in the end? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's one way to do it. And I, a lot of stand up comics are kind of aping that formula right now where they do that. It's hard though, because if you do like a 60 minute special of, of, of that, that is incredibly hard to write as opposed to like storytelling and having funny incidents in the story, like to write, like he has to basically write like 51 liners like that. It's almost impossible. And remembering it on stage. It's this yeah. mind boggling how somebody can do that. Yeah. He's, he's quite good, obviously. Um, what's so another funny, filter? another one, uh, that we all know and love is hyperbole. And that's the, one of the toughest ones when you just take the unfunny idea that you have and you exaggerate it to an absurd extreme. Sometimes people exaggerate a little bit and then you kind of have um, like a poor man's hyperbole. But if you exaggerate it to the point that is impossible or super, super absurd, violating the laws of physics, violating any uh, law of science, then it's going to be funny. So kind of the classic Borscht Belt comedians would always do that. They would do hyperbole. Um, Johnny Carson would do that. This time-honored thing. We still do it today. It's just, it's in a different structure, so it feels more modern. But anytime you hear like a stand-up comic doing a bit, they're going to escalate it and they're going to ultimately get to some hyperbolic point where whatever point they're making is so absurd that um, it's impossible, you know? Yeah, no, it's true. And then, uh, you know, there, there's one comedian, uh, Andrew Schultz, who he has this interesting way of taking two concepts that are unrelated and by connecting them, making it funny. So that's another one of the funny filters. That's analogy. Yeah. So like he'll say, you know, you ever notice the countries with the best food treat their women the worst. Like no one ever says, Hey, let's go out and get some Canadian food tonight. <laughs> you know, it's always yeah. like Middle Eastern food where they chop off their hands or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. 
and um, he's doing some amazing work. Like he, he's a, a really impressive guy. Yeah. The way he harnesses a lot of the controversies that we're all thinking about and talking about and can make us, you know, kind of relax and laugh at them. That's, that's really hard, you know? So he's doing some impressive work. Yeah. No, I, I wonder if that's a progressive thing or a conservative thing, because right now the progressives take woke culture very seriously. So it's really hard to joke about it. Whereas, you know, and I would say Andrew Schultz leans more on the right of center side and he's yeah, able to poke fun at wokeism a little bit. Yeah. So you can, you can poke fun at wokeism. You can poke fun at anything, but at the end of the day, you can't, overtly violate it. Like if Andrew Schultz got up on stage and said, yeah, I don't believe in a woman's right to choose, or I don't think gay people should get married. He'd be, he'd be canceled, you know? Right. So he has to play to the audience's good intentions. Like they, they like people, they want people to be free and they want people to have rights. And I think within that parameter, and Bill Burr does this too, like he can pretend to sort of be the aggrieved white male who's tired of all these other people <laughs> getting almost as many rights as him. And it works, you know, cause he, he toes the line. He's really an expert at towing that line. He's very close though, because it's hard very to close. tell. It's hard to tell when he's ranting and then you get a little upset or if he's telling a joke, cause his punchlines are not as punchy. It's more his rant. That yep. is funny. Yeah. Like he did a bit on, um, abortion in his recent special and Bill Burr covered abortion in his recent special. And they both did the exact same thing. It was very fascinating to me how they did this. They play to the progressive base because you always have to, otherwise nobody likes you. Nobody's laughing if you don't do that. So their, their kind of base is, I believe in a woman's right to control her own body. That's foundational, bare minimum. But, you know, and then Andrew Schultz makes a joke about, um, so that when we get to heaven and God says, hey, you've been killing all these babies, I can say, hey, it wasn't me. It was the women. You know, that's a good joke. And Bill Burr said, um, his joke on it was, you know, I believe in a woman's right to choose, of course. Uh, but on the other hand, you are killing a baby. You are definitely killing a baby, you know. Uh, and and, and just, Louis C.K. also has something in his, uh, I think it's Louis C.K. 2017, um, where he says, you, you basically either believe you're killing a baby or you're taking a giant shit. And if you're taking a giant, and he goes on and on, but then he basically right. says, just know you're just killing babies and it's okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that was Bill Burr's thing too. Is like, you know what? I don't mind. Kill them. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's all, it's always very interesting to me to see how people handle that uh, because it's very important that they play to that 99% that I talked about. Um, but they can do that. In, the most skillful comedy writers can do that in a way that uh, reaches people who identify as conservatives and people who identify as liberals and not alienate any of them. Well, what's uh, just one more funny filter. Cause these are, these are fascinating. Yeah. So another funny filter that I love is parody. So it's a funny filter that you can use to filter an idea into a joke by just mimicking a format or a voice that we've all heard before. For example, the onion is a parody of a, a news organization and just that little facade makes whatever you're saying a little funnier. And so parody can be a format like that. It can also be used within a joke. So you can have an onion headline that uses parody that's within the parody of the onion, you know, 
And the funny filters are like that. They're like toys. You can do a funny filter within a funny, funny filter. You combine funny filters to make new funny filters. So there's 11 of them, but there's almost an unlimited amount of or kinds of jokes that you can make with them. Have you ever considered stand-up? Oh, yeah. So I've been, um, I actually thought I was going to start it as a stand-up. You know, I did that for my high school talent show. And, but then I got into doing comic strips and doing The Onion. And so for like decades, I was behind the scenes and my performing muscle totally atrophied. But then I started going out representing The Onion because they would bring, they would want someone from The Onion to come to a college and do a show. And so I had to write like a kind of a one-man show. And then when I left The Onion, I kept doing that, but I wasn't representing The Onion anymore. I was just myself. And that became like, you know, my stand-up act, I guess. It was very onion-y, onion-focused. And only recently, like in the past, I don't know, five or so years, I've been doing more actual stand-up where I go to open mics and I don't tell people I'm affiliated with The Onion in any way. So I kind of have a, you know, a blank slate. And it's, it's so fun and challenging and fascinating because it's a totally different muscle than yeah, as you know, from doing written comedy, because it's your your personhood and your confidence and stage presence are such a huge part of the the mix. And I mean, it's not just about the jokes. I remember watching a very very early Jezelnik set, and he was still he was a great writer from the beginning because he wrote for um, I forgot what show he wrote for maybe Jimmy Kimmel and. So he was used to writing tons of jokes and he got very good as a joke writer. And then the Jimmy Kimmel staff did a, a stand-up set. And so this was like a very early set from Jeselnik. And mm. he he's great, but he didn't have the performance skill he has now. And right. just adding that performance skill is like a 10x factor right. on his, you know, that's why he's one of the greats now. Yeah, you watch somebody like him on stage and you can't fake that kind of, self-assuredness, you know, that, that is so powerful and it takes time to develop that, you know? So it's, it's fun to be on that journey and being in that process. I'm, I'm uh, just loving, loving it to death. And he gets away with, I know we've been focusing on Jesuit. There's lots of great comedians, <laughs> but, but he get he gets away with like, it's very obvious he's performing material and we're okay with it. But some comedians, you're not, if you know, it's material, it turns you off a little bit. They, they oh, they're going to tell this. You, you feel like they're being slutty. They're going to tell this to the same audience every day. But with Jezelnik, you're kind of okay because it's so much of a magic trick. You really just want to see how he <laughs> pulls the rabbit out of the hat on each joke. Whereas nice. with Dave Chappelle or like Dave Chappelle's an, an example on the other side where you don't feel like this is material at all. And he's just having a conversation with the audience and he might have a different one tomorrow. Yeah, and obviously no comedian, almost no comedian is doing that. But it's really interesting how so many comedians now are sort of doing that style, that style of revealing something personal about themselves. Yeah. And that's how they connect with the audience. And it is kind of an easy way to connect with the audience, but it's become such a cliche. It's almost like people think that's a rule now that you have to do that. And there are so many comedians like Jesselnick and, you know, Steve Martin is another one, uh, never revealed anything about himself on stage. It wasn't about him. You know, it was all silliness. And 
I like that broad range of possibilities in stand-up comedy to, to see what kind of new different things people are going to bring to it. It gets a little tiring seeing people always do the Chappelle, you know, uh, Louis C.K., Bill Burr thing where it's just, hey, here's who I am and here's my opinion about life, you know. Wait, Louis C.K. started off from a, a more classic standpoint. Like he was an absurdist at first. And then over time, when he, after he had kids, he's like, my kids suck. And then he, would, he got more personal. Yeah, he's had a long evolution. Um, you know, he started as a TV writer as well. Yeah. Um, so I remember uh, we were going to do a, an Onion TV special with him back in the late 90s because we had worked on the Dana Carvey show together. Ah. Um, and uh, it's been amazing to see his career and then fascinating to see how it, uh, how he fell recently as well. Yeah, and how he's dealing with that on stage because now, I mean, he's selling out Madison Square Garden again. So uh, he's he's able to then talk about these controversies on on stage. But uh, yeah. it's yeah, it's it's fascinating to watch. Like you can't expect comedians to have perfect lives. Like in many cases, they're comedians because they're almost grossly imperfect, and that's given them this you know weird perspective on life. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to. Um, the audience, you know, like if the audience can accept you and laugh at you, great. If some people are are going to be creeped out by you, by what you did, you know, like I, I can't listen to a Bill Cosby record the same yeah. way that I used to. I know um, that's, Bill Cosby was the first comedian I ever saw live. Like, so uh, yeah. that was a fall. <laughs> no, that was a big fall. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm of two minds about that. I mean, I I do think it just depends on individual preference. Like, if you can still sit and listen to a comedian and laugh at them, God bless you. You should do it. But you know, other people are not going to be able to for whatever reason. You know. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything 
than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs HIMS. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Let me ask you this. Like now you're what? You're about 57 years old, right? Exactly how old I am. Yeah. And do you, and you're not at the onion anymore. Do you right. find that there was a point after turning 50 that your ambitions kind of morphed in a weird way that you weren't as interested in being as big or as known or as, you know, let's make the onion the best or... Like, do you find your, in what way has your ambitions changed as you've gotten past 50? And I, and 50 is specifically the number I'm, I'm curious about. Yeah. Thank you for that uh, introspective question. So I am very self-identified as an incredibly driven and ambitious person. And I still am that. I don't think I've changed at all, even after 50. So my focus changes, you know, I work on a different thing. So after the age of 50, I wrote a couple of comedic books. I'm, you know, getting more into stand-up. I'm still going and performing at colleges. I'm teaching comedy. And so I'm really passionate about that. I love seeing students, you know, start from nowhere and go to get professional jobs writing comedy. That that's incredibly satisfying. Um the I think my body still has not like. Uh, slowed down. So, because ultimately it does depend on your physical capacity for work. Because back in the in the early days of the onion, when I was in my 20s and 30s, we would pull all nighters, we pull all weekenders, you know, trying to make the onion perfect. And I'm still doing that crap. You know, I'm still pulling all nighters, you know, trying to do a little animated cartoon for my podcast or something like that. So I'm really comfortable in that space of not being famous, working really hard to, to make something funny that people will like, and not relying on a brand mm. to get me there with a shortcut. So it's oftentimes why I leave The Onion 
so often because it gets boring when you produce comedy under the umbrella of a major brand like that because audiences don't really need to be as wooed when they trust the brand, you know? I feel, so, I, I feel like stand-up would be a real, you know, interesting thing. For, I mean, obviously, you, you know it would be an interesting thing for you, but I feel like that would be a, a really great challenge to get to get great at it because for so many years, for decades, you were writing the funny and editing the funniest jokes and material out there. And then right. to, to, to learn the skill of, which again, I'm sure you, you, you have, but it takes like going up on stage every night, like to learn the skill of really performing those jokes would must be an amazing combination. Yeah. I'm, I'm loving it. I, I do get out like almost every night. Um, there, there are oh, enough great. open mics in, um, Minneapolis where I live. And, um, and I just went to Chicago, I had like a weekend in Chicago and I, I got some time there. I got a little showcase. But where'd, so, you, where'd you perform there? It was at the Lincoln Lounge. Do you know that place? No, no, but I've, I've done the Laugh Factory in uh, Chicago. Yeah, when I, when I first started, I, um, I had a mentor, Tim Clue. I don't know if you know Tim Clue. Yeah. Um, he was getting me stage time at all the clubs in Chicago, like Zanies and everything oh, else. Oh, Zanies. I'm sorry. Zanies is where I perform in Chicago. Yeah, great. It's a great place. And it's so fun to see like the individual cultures of each club. Some of them, you know, require a little banter, a little crowd work. Some of them don't want to <laughs> interact with you. Um, but yeah, I, I appreciate uh, what you're saying. I, I do. That is kind of my new challenge, you know, is, is to try to master this new type of this area of comedy that I've neglected for so many years. And, you know, one thing that's interesting is when you go to a school and they say, oh, here's you know, Scott Dickers from The Onion, then everybody's choosing to go and see you. And so when you make a joke, they're more likely to laugh. Yep. But a stand-up situation, and particularly an open mic, which that's dangerous, but like, yes. you know, then they don't know you and the challenge is significantly harder. Like they're yep. almost like holding their hands crossed and saying, okay, you know, they're challenging you to make them laugh as opposed to an audience that's very receptive. So now for myself, I enjoy public speaking where everybody knows me because I just know I'm going to make them laugh. Whereas like in a stand-up situation, and I owned a club in New York, but in a stand-up situation, it's hard. Like that's the yep. hardest thing ever. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot, that, that sort of demeanor that a stand-up comic needs to be instantly at least allowed by the audience to try to to be funny for them because if you're a brand if you're bill burr and you book uh an arena and you do that you know you're gonna do fine you know even if your jokes aren't great you're getting a big boost by just being a guy that they know and love yeah and but so many comics who aren't household names they have to cultivate this onstage demeanor that is kind of submissive and you know it's almost like you're on a first date you know with the, with the audience and and, you, and and it won't work if you if you are too submissive the audience senses yeah, that yeah exactly you you ha you can't you have to have this find this perfect balance of ultra confidence and um likability um a little bit of submissiveness that will allow them to laugh at you or with you 
and kind of accept you and say, oh yeah, this, this guy is pretty funny. And it's a really tough balance to discover. And part of it is discovering your like persona. What's your on age? What's your on stage persona? What do people think of you when they see you? What's the vibe they get? And it's hard, you know, it takes a long time. Yeah, no. It, and I think that's the under-recognized part of stand-up skill is that you, it is a persona. It's not necessarily a fake persona, but it is like an extreme version of something that's inside of yourself. Like, like oh. for instance, you know, I have curly hair and glasses, right? So I look smart. And so what I, what I, my persona kind of evolved into someone who is saying things that sound smart, but are actually like really, really stupid. <laughs> and cause ultimately no one is smart and everything. So if I talk about parenting, I'm going to act like I'm being like a great parent, but I'm saying like the stupidest things about parenting. And then people, the, 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 it's dissonant with how I look. So that became, you know, part of my, part of my act, but like, you know, you take someone like Andrew Schultz or, 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 you know, or even Dave Chappelle, they, with Andrew Schultz in particular, he's having a party on stage. So yes. whenever he's, even the times when he's not funny, you still want to laugh at him because you want to join the party. So that's his yeah. persona. Yeah. He does this thing. A lot of comics do that's really effective where they're stifling laughter almost the whole time, you know? Yeah. yeah. Sometimes it feels like that too. Up. Yeah. Um, it, it's a, it's a little trick that people use on stage, um, to make the audience comfortable laughing. And it's harder to do if you're doing like, um, a Stephen Wright bit or, or, uh, a Steve Martin type of performance where your whole persona is like a straight man, you know, yeah. I guess Steve Martin did a lot of like smiling and stuff, but, uh, I guess Stephen Wright's a better example or even like Andy Kaufman where, he, where he's like being totally like scared and flat. Um, it's, it's fascinating. It's fun. It's fun to see what the, what's been done. It's fun to see what the trends are and like how those can be bucked to come up with something new. Cause I think ultimately something new is what's going to really succeed in comedy. It's the new that always gets the attention. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I would say in general, because of the rise of TikTok and you know, these other short form formats, there are a lot of funny things on YouTube and TikTok. Like, like in this, in this, in terms of making me laugh, a lot funnier than stand up. But stand up as an art form, as a funny art form, is so great, and I appreciate it so much. It always wins for me over TikTok, even though TikTok's amazing in terms of you know humorous videos out there. I know, and it's it can be daunting to know that when you're in the comedy business, you're out there competing against everyone in the world's best day. Yeah, <laughs> there somebody's having their best day because their video went viral that day, and that's your competition every single day. And look, yeah. that's the competition for the onion too. Like, I'm surprised yeah. the onion and the Babylon Bee keep, you know, every month. You you're only as good as it, it's really true. You're only as good as your last, you know, new edition. And every month they keep rising up and and being topical and and saying smart things and and funny. And it's it's just always such a pleasure to read. It it's I love comedy so much and in all forms. But I've been reading the onion for gosh. Again, I wish since the beginning, but I was only aware really when you were online. And then I was so surprised to see that you actually had a print editions. Now I know for the first time in decades, now I know the print edition came first. I didn't know that. 
Yeah, well, I'm glad you discovered it when you did. Um, that was a magical time, uh, the mid to late 90s when we were first getting online. That was kind of when we were first getting known, you know. Nationally, yeah. Yeah. And uh, what would you think is the funniest, I'm sure you've been asked this, but what do you think is the funniest headline? And by the way, we always speak in terms of headlines because it's the headlines that are funny. The articles just sort of support the headline. Yeah, no, they do. And we always start with the headline and the article is kind of an afterthought. But if it's well-written and well-done, which we always would try to do, of course, it builds on the headline and it gets funnier and funnier and funnier. But my the funniest headline ever, my God, there's so many, but uh, one of my all-time favorites is an editorial that The Onion did by the CEO of the Gillette Razor Company. And the headline was, fuck it, we're doing five blades. <laughs> and at that time, Gillette, no one had done a five-bladed razor. And so it was hyperbole. And the article is so well-written. It's so funny. The character of that guy is just hilarious. Highly recommend everyone Google that story, read it. It's super funny, fun read. But one of the reasons I like it so much is that just a few months later, after that article, Gillette unveiled a five-bladed race. <laughs> like, yeah. the Onion predicted the future by just a few months. And I love when the Onion predicts the future. There's nothing more satisfying than when you try to do something that you think is totally absurd hyperbole, and it works as humor, and then the world catches up with you, and the world becomes just as absurd as, as you could imagine. Well, it could be because the world is absurd, right? So yeah. <laughs> when, you, when, when you see stories like mainstream stories about how you know congressmen own stocks related to the bills that they're you know stridently you know trying to pass, like that's absurd. Like that such a thing even exists and is barely it's questioned, but it's barely questioned. So you right. could see how that's serious, but also with a little twist, it's absurd and funny. Or, or you know, some now I'm reading up stories about these. This congresswoman was was what's called swatted. Like people called up. Oh yeah, yeah. Marjorie yeah. Taylor Green was swatted. Marjorie Taylor Green was swatted. Like people called up and said, "I I just killed you know five people. I'm at this address," and then. Right. She's just having dinner, and then the FBI and the and police are there with guns, like they don't know what they're facing, and yeah. like that's absurd, but it's real. <laughs> yeah, you know that that, and that's the the gift that the world gives to comedy is that it's always absurd, and people are always crazy and stupid, and you know you're never going to run out of material. Um, that this video went viral recently of the, uh, I think it was the House some sort of house uh, banking committee where the, the bankers that they were supposed to be regulating and one of the, the Congress people who was supposed to be regulating them were just winking at each other and laughing about how their, their staff um, works with them in Congress and then goes to work at the banks. And it's all this like glad handing and ah, we're just, we're all buddies here. And it's just the creepiest <laughs> video. Like there's nothing more absurd than that. And The Onion actually has been doing a good job recently of pointing out that absurdity about how our politics is completely corrupted and just owned by, you know, all the industries that we're supposed to be regulating and regular people are not, their interests are not being served by the government at all. So, so if you think about it, the government is absurd and somewhat scam-like, 
media is absurd and somewhat scam like what you know not counting the onion what industries are not absurd like even the medical industry doctors of course recommend oh, medicines that the pharma lobbyists you know sold to them uh right. the legal industry is all a scam like you know lawyers are representing murderers that they know murdered and vice versa uh like what industry is not a scam yeah it it goes back to what i was saying uh the way i approach comedy is by looking at the audience as being divided into the 99% who are getting screwed and the 1% who are doing the screwing. And if you target that 99%, you're going to do great. And everything you represent, everything you mentioned is represented by the 1%. People in government, you know, multimillionaires, uh, corrupt, just taking all this, all this uh, contribution money, bribe money from uh, the corporations they're, they're supposed to be regulating. The big businesses uh, that profit off of people's suffering, those are all the 1%. So it's easy to kind of look at society and say, oh, so much of it is corrupt. It's so simple for me to just say, no, it's just the, that 1%. They have all the power and all the money, basically. It's true. You know? So like, let's say like 1% or 2% of the country does in fact own every industry. <laughs> so every yeah. industry is a scam. So like, let's so every just industry is a, a scam. Like you say, take Campbell's Soup, for instance. Oh, it's soup with vegetables and blah, blah, blah. You know, if you actually send it to a chemist, it's filled with like the worst poisons possible to mankind. And, yeah. and without even like examining it, like you have, that has to be true. No offense, it's Campbell's soup. Maybe I'm wrong. No. So, it's, it's actually surprising to me that any of it works at all, that the, the FDA can actually successfully regulate meat and canned food in such a way that we're all not just constantly poisoned and dying because the the way the reason they set up the fda originally was because big companies were canning poison and se selling it to people and killing them sure so the government stepped in it was like we gotta we gotta limit this somewhat and but, so they yeah, come up with rules but you know the, everybody in the fda is like with a big ag or a big pharma company so I, I'm mystified that any of it works. Yeah, I mean, you, you, the same thing happens with the F FDA and the SEC, which re regulates the stock market that happens in yeah. Congress, is that you rise up in the SEC, oh, of course, JP Morgan is going to hire you for $10 million a year because you know all <laughs> how to get around the SEC. So right. it took that great, um, that great move that FDR did by appointing... Uh, Joe uh, Kennedy. Joe Kennedy as the first... Uh, SEC director, right? Uh, wasn't he yeah. the first? Yeah, he was the first. And he's, and, uh, and FDR they, specifically they hired said him. He, yeah, yeah, he hired him because he knew how to game the system. He knew how it worked. And that was just a, a genius move. Like, we'll hire the guy who knows exactly how to do it. It's like hiring Abagnale to nail um, uh, scam artists at the FBI or something. Um, and the and joke there, by the way, is that none of the stories in Abigail's book apparently were true. It's so, all scam. He's still I, scamming us. I, I, I don't know if that's for sure, but someone just told me that the other day that they couldn't that's, verify any of the stories. I wouldn't doubt it for a second. But we're we're riding on the coattails of of that move by FDR to this day. We still think like Trump used this a lot. He's like, oh, I know the crooks. I'll hire a crook to oversee the crooks, and that way they'll get rid of the crooks. We still buy that, even though now it's not working the same way anymore. We're just we're just hiring 
foxes to guard the hen house is all we're doing now, you know? Does it end well? <laughs> oh my God. I, you know, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, but I'm also a doomer. So, you know, reconcile that somehow. It does seem like we're, we're, uh, you know, headed to hell in a handbasket. I just want to enjoy the ride, you know, do my best. And, um, you know, hopefully people will get a chuckle from my work, uh, along the way, you know, I, I agree with you. Like I tend to, I've always been an optimist, but I guess for now, for the first time, I'm a little bit nervous just because there's so much weird tension all around the world, but I'm um, hope, hopefully there's still optimistic outcomes. Like just things, like, like you said earlier, things just tend, somehow it all fits. It's somehow it all works despite <laughs> all the corruption and the scams. So I'm yeah. hoping that still happens that, you know, Putin doesn't really want to drop nukes and she doesn't really want war all over the world and on and on and on. But we'll yeah. see. Humor does keep things alive. And look, I gave up, I gave up like five, six years of career to, you know, cause I'm more, I'm from, I've had a bunch of different careers, but I sort of gave it all up to pursue comedy for six years, day and night, just because I, I loved it so much. And it, it really kept me going. That's a, that's a noble quest, <laughs> you know, to drop out and do comedy. Yeah. And I, I mean, I still kept alive other things I was doing, but I was like at least four or five hours a day studying comedy or performing comedy and like five, six nights a week going out and, and doing it. And it's brutal. If you ask my wife, they, they would either be, my wife would either be like so happy because it went well. So I was happy or just trying to explain to me, it's not as bad as you thought. Like there were people laughing in the corner. It's just, you didn't see them. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's a tough world out there doing stand up. but yeah, as long as the, the world survives, um, you know, I'll, I'll keep doing it. I'll keep trying to be funny. And, um, you know, the best case scenario is that we all, uh, we all go extinct, uh, uh while we're, we're cracking up laughing. Yeah. That's a, that, that's a great one. So, so Scott, what do, what do you want? What do you want people to buy? <laughs> We're going to sell something for you. What do you, what do you, All what right. do you feel like they should go out and buy? Thank you for allowing me to, uh, be a part of your pitch fest. So yes, I, um, I sell books. You mentioned a couple of my books. The, um, the history of the onion is called outrageous marketing. Uh, the story of the, of the onion and how to build a powerful brand with no marketing budget. A lot of funny stories about the onion starting up there. My how to write funny book series. There's four books in that series. I can't that'll, wait to get those. Yeah, yeah, that'll teach you how to how to do comedy real fast. And then I have I have courses if you want to go deeper with me. Uh, how to write funny course and how to succeed in the comedy business course. And if you want a bunch of free stuff, you can go to my website howtowritefunny.com, where there's all sorts of resources for uh, improving your comedy and getting better at doing comedy. And then you know you should. Subscribe to my podcast, Scott Dickers Around. I, I try to be funny every week and I do little animated cartoons. I do characters. I do like I that's where I, I do my stand-up ideas, you know. So that show becomes my the grist for my stand-up material mill, you know. I, I you know, I'm sorry I didn't know you had a podcast. I'm definitely gonna start listening. Like I I find now that doing public speaking, like at a conference is where I'm able to try stuff out because it's a little easier because everyone knows me, everyone's going to laugh and, and I have a fun time with those. But you know, you're not, and I do that, that too, but you're, you know, you're not getting, uh, um, it's not a clean experiment because they, they already like you. So 
You got to do that at an open mic night or it doesn't count. <laughs> let, let me ask you this question. This is, this will be the final question, but this is advice I gave my daughter. So one of my daughters was thinking of trying an open mic and I gave her this advice, which is very taboo kind of advice. I said, you're going to an open mic. No one's really at an open mic. Some are good, but most of them are just open micers attending and they're worried about their own set. So no one's even listening to you when you're on stage, you're not going to get any laughs or very few, but here's what you should do, which is steal a joke from your favorite comedian or your favorite joke and try it out and see if people laugh because you know, the joke's funny. So if they don't laugh, then it's your performance work needs work. And if they do laugh, then you're, you know, then you could start thinking about your own material. Cause then you could see, then you have a base point where, you know, a funny joke, your performance skills good enough. They'll laugh at a funny joke. Now you could write your own material and see if it works. Now that's taboo to yeah, steal a joke, but, but for an open mic and for just educational purposes, it's like doing a, it's like a band doing a cover. Like if someone does a cover of, uh, you know, the, uh, the best Beatles song in the world, if it doesn't work for an audience, it means you suck as musicians. And that's how yeah, you know no, it's, it's a really interesting bit of advice because, and I don't disagree with it because almost anybody starting out in comedy started by copying other people, any comedian you research, any comedy writer you research, you know, they started doing other people's material. Oh yeah. Rosie O'Donnell was doing Jerry Seinfeld right after Jerry Seinfeld would do it. <laughs> uh, Steve Martin was stealing, you know, bits that he, he heard other people do. Um, George Carlin was doing Bill Cosby's records in school. I aped Mad Magazine and tried to write funny articles like Mad Magazine. We all do it. So as long as you, she knows, like, this is how you start. As soon as you try that, you never do it again. Right. Like, don't do it in your Netflix special. Totally. But just at totally. an open mic, just to, as a test to see yeah. where your weak points are. And totally. she was like trying to tell me, no, you can't steal a joke. But I'm just saying, you're just learning. And it's not like everybody's putting this on YouTube and then you're going to get banned from the industry. Like this is a good yeah. way to learn. So Another way you could do it is you could, if, if she's nervous about stealing material, she could just go on stage at an open mic with no material. Just go up there without any pre-planned material and just talk to the audience as if she has encountered someone on the street and just see what, how it feels, you know, because that's ultimately what it's going to be. And you're going to bomb. You're going to fail anyway. Like you said, it's mostly other comedians at the open mic. Uh, don't, don't stress yourself out, you know? Yeah. You know, and along those lines, there's a couple of good specials that are just crowd work. So like Andrew Schultz, for instance, who we talked about earlier, he's done a crowd work special. Judah Friedlander has done a crowd work special. Todd Barry, he's done a great crowd work special. It was unbelievable. You know, those crowd work specials are also good to see how they how they pull it off. It's very, very interesting. Yep. Uh, crowd work is like the hidden secret of comedy. It's it people love it. It's like doing improv and the stakes are lowered. Like you don't have to have as good material. And if you do it enough, you find this people are saying the same thing. So you can actually develop an act. Oh, know, yeah. Crowd work. And I've seen I, I opened for Judah once and he did his whole his whole act was crowd work with the audience. And it's kind of a lot of the same material you see in his special. You know, he he has a system for it. Yeah, well, he's got, he's got, I don't know if this was the same shtick, but he had his whole thing, I'm running for president, ask me any issue. Now, of course, everyone's going to ask similar yeah. issues. Yeah. <laughs> they so, all do, yeah. He's got answers, yeah. Uh, so crowd work is, an, is a great way to do it. And it's, 
a nice way to open up an open mic too. Cause most people are, there's like two people, they're sitting way in the back, you know, uh, you're going to get more out of it if you try some crowd work. Definitely. Well, Scott, it's been such a pleasure talking to you and I'm a really big admirer of everything you've accomplished. And it's, it's really such a, a great thing. I so much love doing this podcast because I get to talk to people like you and I, I appreciate you, you coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for the kind words. It's uh, my delight uh, to be here and a super fun conversation. So thank you for having me, James. Thanks. Really appreciate it. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 